uh, and you would like to take notes or follow along on my outline handouty thing, uh, raise your hand, and my lovely assistant, Abigail, uh, will hand out the handout uh, and pens or pencils, uh, as the case may be. Uh, so, uh, for those of y'all who are, uh, uh, have been following along, we are going back to Acts this week. Uh, during the summer, I make it a habit of preaching through Old Testament books, and we worked on Daniel for a while, and I did a, a proverb sermon last week as just kind of a standalone, and, and this week we're going back to Acts. We're picking up where we left off, uh, last, uh, fall, and I'm, I'm delaying a little bit so Abby can finish handing out handouts uh, without distracting anyone. Josh, do you need one? Okay. Because it doesn't look like you have one. <laughs> Can I have one, dearest? I'm going to come down and get one. Abby, what's... You're watching children? Rebecca is watching children, for those who are curious. Um, I'm going to pray real quick before we start, uh, as soon as almost there, right, Abby? Almost. All right. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you be with me uh, as I share the word this morning. Um, I pray that you would uh, help me to, to speak uh, in harmony with your word and to share uh, the truth of the gospel, the truth of... of um, the truth of everything that that you reveal to us in your word, Lord. I pray that the folks who are here who need to hear from you would hear from you, and I pray for your grace in that. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, so uh, about three years ago, there was a very odd and uncomfortable uh, sort of public controversy that took place uh, after a school shooting. Um, There was a some politician uh, said, uh, you know, we, we offer our hopes and prayers in this time. And, and uh, for some reason, all over uh, the Internet, in a bunch of different newspapers and political speeches, all of these folks got really wound up about the idea of praying and, and, and uh, sort of that spiritual aspect because, because it's not enough. Um, and... and that's gotten nastier and angrier as the years have gone by and has not gone away. Um, and it's always strange to me when I see a tragedy and the very first thing that people say is, you know, forget your prayers, they're useless, you know, there's no point. And it, it always makes me sort of, you know, wonder, like, where are we at? Um, but then, like this week, uh, we're going to be talking about prayer. Uh, and as I really thought about it and as I really dug into it, I realized um, I'm probably the slowest person in this room to ask people to pray for me. Um, and I don't know why. Like, well, actually, I do know why. It's because I've been in church long enough that there's a part of me that, that just wants to keep everything in my life kind of secret. You know what I mean? And admitting that I'm not great at everything is hard. And I know y'all are a little destroyed by hearing that I'm not great at everything. Um, but, but asking people to pray for me and admitting I'm not, you know, holding on to everything perfectly and keeping all the plates spinning and... And everything else. But beyond that, I think there are times where we say, I'll pray for you. And deep down, it sort of feels like the consolation prize. And in fact, actually, I, I think I, I caught myself saying that to someone the other day where I said, well, I can't help, but I'll pray for you. And I was like, 
Anybody ever think that or say that? Is it just me? Am I the only horrible person in the room? Um, and, and as we dive into the text here, um, I think there's something huge to this. And I think this huge thing, I'll try and draw it out, but I think, I think a lot of weakness in the church, a lot of weakness in the church universal, not just ours, but like the body of Christ. I'm not talking about people in this room. I'm actually often impressed by like what folks pray over and see answer to like, like in this body. And I'm always very humbled by that. Um, but I, I think the church universal struggles with prayer and I think there's a reason for it. And I think this text draws it out. And so as we dive into it, we're going to be in Acts 12. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts 12. It's sort of toward the back. Um, and, um, if you're going to miss everything I say, uh, Listen to this main point. Here it is. The main point today is that the strength of the church is rooted in God's strength. Um, When we're weak, God is strong on our behalf, right? Um, It's a little like I visit the nursing home um, when when I'm able. I'm not able to right now uh, because I had a COVID exposure. Uh, I was in the room with somebody who had COVID. Across the room, social distanced, I was, you know, but I'm... And they were non-symptomatic and everything else, but I can't go to the nursing home because of that. And I, I watch folks who have oxygen, you know, and they, they breathe and they need it, right? Their own breathing isn't ever enough at that point because, because it's not enough. And they need pure oxygen to survive. And, and the church's strength is that, right? It is the pure spiritual gift. It is the Holy Spirit filling us. And the very foundation of that is prayer, um, but I think the church oftentimes takes off the mask and says, I have strong enough lungs, I can do this myself. And we're all self-reliant, right? Nobody likes to admit they can't do stuff. Nobody likes to admit they need help. Nobody likes to admit that, that they are falling short or screwing up or whatever. Like, like, we don't like to do that. That's our whole culture. And the church is the anti-that or is designed to be the anti-that. We need to recognize that our strength is in the Lord. That our strength is in the oxygen of, of prayer and God's grace on us. Because we can't do anything on our own. So we're going to dive into Acts 12. Um, for those of y'all, all right, so it's been like a year since we've read, or maybe eight months since we've read Acts, or seven months. Um, where we left off in Acts, uh, the church has just started reaching out to Gentiles, right? And like the Gentile uh, Pentecost happened, like the Holy Spirit came on the church and all of a sudden, like, all these Gentiles and Samaritans and other folks who the Jew- Jews, like, really, really, really didn't like are becoming Christians. And they're joining the church. And the church in Jerusalem is sort of multiple bits based on which synagogue they're associated with. But the most Jewish of the synagogues is led by one group of the apostles, uh, James the Just, who is James the brother of Jesus, actually, is one. And then Peter is sort of over this group who are bringing in more and more um, Gentiles. And, and later on, Paul fights kind of with James and, and these guys because they want to kind of Judaize everyone, right? But the, the portion of the church that is bringing in Gentiles um, is who is talked about in this verse. Now, that's important because there's a lot of question, like historians and Bible scholars have looked at it and said, well, why, why? Why these guys? Why now? Why did the church continue after this unharassed and whatnot? But so watch this. It was about this time, meaning about the time Gentiles started joining the church, that King Herod 
arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now, the problem with King Herod is none of us really know who he is, right? Like he might have been the guy who killed a bunch of children. He might have been the guy who put Jesus on trial. He might have been, and in reality, there are a ton of Herods. Okay, so I have a chart. Um, Check this out. Herod the Great, I forgot my laser pointer. I said to my wife, remind me to bring my laser pointer. And I, I, she forgot to remind me, so it's her fault. Uh, Herod the Great was king when Jesus was born. And Herod the Great was powerful, right? Herod the Great built, like, the temple, um, the, you know, the second temple to its greatness that it was, like, when Jesus shows up, right? Herod the Great built fortresses and castles and, like, sort of brought Israel onto the world stage as a serious nation, um, and he was called great pretty much by himself, and everyone else hated him. Got it? Herod had people executed, that, like an order, a standing order, to execute prominent people in the country on the day he died so that people would weep over his death. Um, one of the Caesars commented, it is safer to be a pig in Herod's courts than to be one of his sons because the Jews wouldn't eat pork. But Herod executed most of his sons. Now, Herod had several wives. One of them was this gal, Miriam, whatever, right? See, right between the one arrow and the other in the chart. And she was a descendant of the Hasmodians. Hasmoneans, Hasmoneans. I can never say it right. I always want to put a D in there. And they were, like, supposed to be kings, Right? They were supposed to be ruling Israel, but they weren't anymore because Israel wasn't ruling Israel. So he married a gal in this lineage, and it was a really good deal for him because that gave him some legitimacy. And then his son, Aristobulus, um, he had him executed, straight up, just killed him. Right? You know why? Because he was pure-blooded in the lineage, and there was a threat to Herod's throne, and he would rather cut your head off than deal with you. And so he executed almost all of his sons, except for one that he kept in prison (laughs) to come along after him. And he was a terrible king, because he didn't learn how to be king sitting in prison, I guess. Um, But he needed a successor, and he didn't want his successor to kill him. And he did run for his life several times. I mean, it was not a good time. And so um, the son of Herod is Herod Agrippa. Who's this guy right here. His mother, recognizing the situation, sent him to Rome, where he was educated and raised, and he was therefore, like in his educational circles, he became friends with some very prominent and influential people, like um, most of the Caesars that reigned during his lifetime. And that's how he ended up king, because he was in the lineage, and he was friends with a guy named Caligula, Right? Better to be Caligula's friend than his enemy. Um, Ask me about him later. He's a very fun guy. Um, But Herod, um, Herod uh, Agrippa, was appointed by uh, Caligula. And then when Caligula was killed by his own guards, because he was really, really a bad Caesar, um, he was replaced by Claudius, who was also a good friend of Herod Agrippa. And what ended up happening was they had broken the country up into little pieces because every other ruler was awful, and Herod Antipas was okay. And he was so okay, not great, okay, he was so okay that 
the Caesars, who were his friends, started giving him more and more territory. And that's important. Why is it important? Because it is the height of the power of the kings in that era. Now, Herod the Great was probably more powerful, but Herod Antipas was liked. It's a big deal. Um, I have one other guy noted here, Herod, uh, or excuse me, um, Herod Agrippa, not Herod Antipas. I've switched that. Herod Antipas is the guy who uh, cut off John the Baptist's head. You know why he did it? What the official charge was? Nothing. He did it because he could. It's good to be the king, right? Like Herod, actually, and there's a whole other story there. We're going to get into that. Um, <laughs> Long, long, long. So understand that we are at the height of Herod um, Agrippa's power when this happens. And Herod Agrippa is constantly trying to make the Jewish people happy. And so he arrests the church. Why? Because nobody liked him. And it was easy, right? Nobody bullies the kid who's popular. And people didn't like the Christians, and so he picked them out. I have another chart here I'm going to skip right over. This is what he ruled in the end. At this time, this is how much of Israel he ruled. You'll notice there are different colors in there because the whole country had been broken up because the Jews were a pain in the neck to Rome. And so they broke it up to make it easier to rule them because everyone who tried to rule them was awful. And he ended up reuniting the country, which the Jews really appreciated, right? And they, he, he, he was on it. Now, understand, this is important because Herod Agrippa was the most powerful and influential king since his grandfather, and he was popular, right? What does that mean? Well, it means he was strong. Get what I'm saying? Like, he was not a tin pot dictator. He was powerful. He had the might of Rome at his back. He had soldiers and castles and armies. He had stuff. He was awesome. Now, he also had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. What was the charge? Probably nothing. Do you understand? They arrested him and killed him. Why? Because he was trying to be popular. He was experimenting to see what would make the Jewish people like him. Because the Jews kept rebelling, and part of his main job was keep people from rebelling. And so, and I'm not kidding, it is really a huge part of his job. So he has James, the brother of John, killed. This is James, the son of thunder. This is James, John, and Peter, who were always with Jesus everywhere they went. This is the first of the 12 to be killed. This is a huge thing. And like, this is decades after the church started. And there was probably this moment of like, Oh my gosh, James is dead. They just killed him publicly. Did you see that? And I imagine the church was shook. And what are they going to do about it? Go to court? Nope. Because there was no court involved. They just killed him. There was no like, like trial. There was no nothing. They had no recourse. And beyond that, the church was not popular and it was not powerful. They had nothing. So they put James to death. And when he saw that this met with approval amongst the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Now, there's a couple of things going on that the first century church would have noticed. First off, um, James was going to get killed at some point. 
not die. Everybody dies, but James is going to be martyred. How do we know? Well, because one time, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What do you want, he asked. And she said, grant that one of my two sons of mine may sit on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. It's always easy to say, yeah, I can do what you're going to do until you're there, right? Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. What is Jesus saying? Yeah, don't worry, you'll get executed. Don't worry, you'll get martyred. Don't worry, your blood will spill just like me. And they all knew it was coming. And then Peter's arrested during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Little bit of a hint here. Peter, the last conversation he had with Jesus, Jesus said, don't worry, there's going to be a day when someone's going to tie your hands and they're going to lead you somewhere you don't want to go. And the text that's in John um, says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death Peter would die. So Peter watches James die, and what's Peter thinking? Oh, what did Jesus say about me? Might have replayed that in his head a few times, and now he's arrested during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's a significant time because that is when Christ was crucified. And so all of the stars are lining up, and Peter is probably sitting there thinking, well, it's been a good run, right? Everybody's looking and saying, oh, my gosh, he's going to kill Peter. Because what are they going to do against King like Herod Agrippa? What are they going to do? What can they do? He is a powerful king. He has authority. He has strength. He has soldiers. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Um, this is, actually, I'm going to skip over my John verse, uh, but I do have an illustration. Check this out. Peter, this is kind of a woodcut of what it would have been. The angel is there. Disregard the angel for the moment. She, he shows up later, right? Um, but Peter is in this prison cell, and you'll notice there's a guard on either side, and there's a chain. There are only two guards in the cell because this is like Roman maximum security, right? Peter escaped jail earlier and they probably looked and said didn't peter get out of jail once and not get executed all right so we're going to deal with this guy seriously chain two guards to him put two guards at his cell door and then every three hours rotate the guards so that they're sharp and ready to do their job he is in maximum security are they going to rescue him nope do they have any hope of filing an appeal nope do they have anything they can do except watch Peter die? Maybe? Now watch this. Um, scholars have discussed where Peter was probably housed, and it was probably in something called the Antonia Fortress. There is a castle, or there was, it's no longer there, in the middle of Jerusalem, and it is, it is an honest-to-goodness castle. This is a model that's in Jerusalem. You can go and see it. It's absolutely amazing. It's the whole city. But this castle is a, it's a castle, like, look at that. That's like when I was a little kid, we pretended we had castles like that, right? He is in a stronghold. In fact, it is such a stronghold that when the Jews rebelled in the 60s, uh, that's 60 AD, not 1960s, 
It took them days of sieging to take this place. And when the Romans took it back, the moment they captured it, it was over. Because they knew if you held the castle, if you held Antonia um, Fortress, you held everything. There's the other side of it. Um, it's actually got a moat, and it's on a hill. It is, it is impregnable by their standards. The church is not rescuing Peter. Everybody with me? All of this is strength. It is a flexed muscle of the world demonstrating that the apostles are illiterate and worthless. And if we kill them, you can't do anything about it. And we'll kill them if we feel like it. Just like James, just like John the Baptist. But not until after Passover. So here's the big idea here. Peter is in the belly of the beast. He's under high surveillance on rotation, he would receive... By the way, the other thing that goes with this, the guards, if Peter escaped, the rule was, Peter escapes, the guards get his punishment. Do the guards want that? Absolutely not. So it's not just like, hey, you're going to get doctor pay if your prisoner dies or escapes. Now, I'm not saying that Epstein didn't hang himself or anything, but like, like you're not just going to get fired. We're going to kill you. Right? That's serious. You're going to guard that guy. You're going to take that stuff seriously. That was a distraction. I apologize. Um, (laughs) But I did it for TJ. So Um, Peter is a dead man. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The church is weak. The church is as weak as they are going to get. They are so astonishingly weak, they cannot do anything to save their brother. There are castles and guards and everything else. Nobody is standing around these guys saying, you know, well, it'll take a miracle, but have fun storming the castle. It's not happening. Right? And so they prayed. Why? Because they couldn't do anything else, right? No. It's because that's how the church breathed back then. It's because the church knew they had no power, so they had to rely on God to be their power. You all with me? Why does that matter? Because in about 300-ish A.D., the church went from being out of power to being in power. When they were out of power, they were weak by worldly standards. But they were very powerful by spiritual standards. They had spiritual strength. They had prayer. They had unity. They, had, they were muscular in a way that like changed the whole stinking world. But then everything changed. And the more worldly power they got, a crazy thing happened. All of a sudden, they didn't need God. Right? I can buy my way out of this trouble. I can push my way out of this trouble. Watch me flex my, flex my muscles. If I don't need God to rescue me, I ain't going to ask. And if I'm going to stop asking because I don't need him, I'm going to ask less and less. And the less I talk to God, the more spiritually dead I become. The problem with power in the church is that we stop relying on the Lord to save us. We start relying on us. The most powerful prayer I've witnessed in my entire life was Carly. Six years ago last week? Oh, my gosh. Right? Everybody knows what I'm talking about? That's Yancey. Six years. We didn't sing happy birthday. We should have sang happy birthday and praised the Lord because it was a miracle and a half, right? 
And Carly believed it. And she prayed and she begged people to pray with her, right? Is there anyone suffering? This is James the just. James the brother of Jesus. Let them pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. By the way, I'm going to read that part again because I think it's an easy to fly over that. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. The key word there is righteous. Righteous means that you are in right relationship with God, that you are in harmony with God, that you are praying for things God will do. We oftentimes pray for things that we want, but have very little to do with what God wants, right? That's my kids oftentimes. Like they could buy anything they want, but what do they ask for? Candy, right? Toys. What would I pay money for? They ask me for books. I'll buy books any day of the week, right? They ask me for clothes. I'll buy clothes. They ask me for the things they need. They ask me for things that will help them be better and grow. I'm willing to do that. But you ask me for things that you want that I don't want for you. Sorry. This is how prayer works. Prayer means we are in the right relationship and we see what God desires and we pray in harmony for with his will, like we pray along with his action and it becomes powerful because fortresses and soldiers and kings cannot stand up to God. They cannot resist him. They cannot do anything against him. They are powerless. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. I think he's sleeping because he's given up. Everybody with me? Like... What's the point? He's not scared, I don't think, because he's sleeping. Um, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains. The sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. Now, from this point forward, it becomes a a comedy act. Everybody with me? I'm going to read it all in a chunk, but you need to follow this. This is funny, and it's supposed to be funny. Because, like, if you picture it in your head, an angel appears, like, 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 just comes out of nowhere, and there's probably, you know, the place fills with light, and there's probably glitter everywhere, and they'll never get it out of their clothes. Um, and, and, like, maybe even, like, choruses or jingles or whatever, and he is, like, eight feet tall, and he's got a sword and, you know, t- ten eyes, because if you read angels, they, you know, in the Bible, they were weird. I mean... He is big and terrifying, and the room is lit up. And what does Peter do? By the way, here's the picture again to kind of put it into perspective. You know, the angel shows up. What does Peter do? He wakes up at the light and is ready to go. Nope. Peter sleeps through it. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. So I'm just going to tell you, most scholars assume he kicked him. So, like, he shows up, and there's light, and it's all impressive and awesome. He's made this grand entrance, and Peter slept through the whole thing. Come on, get up. You get out of bed. 
Worse than getting my kids up in the morning, right? And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. Every parent in the room knows exactly what's happening right here. Come on. (laughs) We got to leave. It's time to go. You know, there are soldiers. They're going to wake up. Put your clothes on. Put your shoes on. Put your belt on. You know, and Peter is clownishly not moving fast enough. Kicked awake, harassed into motion, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you, get your coat on, and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. (laughs) Peter doesn't even know what's happening at this point. He's, you know, sort of walking through this half asleep and assuming, oh, I'm having a dream. This isn't really happening. Does Peter sound like like an action hero at this point? Is Peter ninjaing his way out of this building? It is not that way. Peter is basically falling on his face through the escape, right? He is escaping despite Peter. Um, and he went out and followed him. I'm sorry, I read that, didn't I? Um, And they had passed the first and the second guard, meaning they got up and walked out, and none of the guards saw them. They came to the iron gate. Remember that big castle-looking front with the two doors? They came to the iron gate um, leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he's still not quite figuring it out, He's standing in the street having escaped prison, a maximum security, like, if these guards don't stop you, they'll be executed prison. He wakes up and he's like, oh my gosh, I just escaped. It's like accidentally discovering plutonium. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were, all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he had passed through the first and second guard, I'm sorry, I just read that part. Um, Then he realized, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. By the way, this is John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, just so you know. Sort of a guess as to where this place is, but I'll show it to you in a second. Um, The Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. And where, excuse me, where many were gathered together and were praying. So what are the, what's the church doing? They're praying, right? Oh, I'll pray for you because I can't do anything better. Thoughts and prayer, what a waste of time. What just happened? Peter escaped. And I think a lot of times, like the early church, they prayed, and I don't think these guys necessarily believed that it was going to happen. By the way, so Peter escapes this jail. See it next to the temple up there in the corner? And he crosses through the city, passes through a set of gates, through a set of gates from one part of the city to another, which also would have been guarded, passes through a busy neighborhood to this house, right? This is not a short trip. He's wandering the streets in the middle of the night, an escape fugitive, and escaping. Here's another view of it, just so you understand. He did not walk 10 feet. And by the time he gets to John Mark's house, I'm betting he's a little afraid. Anybody think you would be? Probably ran a big chunk of it, right? Stayed in the alleys and stuff like that. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda 
came to answer. Rhoda was a very common slave name, by the way. Uh, Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Again, crack troops, ninjas, anybody have an ounce of sense in this room? Who's doing all the heavy lifting here? Lord is, right? These guys are not doing it on their own. They know they can't do it on their own, and so they need God to do it for them. The problem the, other, the early church has, or this church, this Western American church has, is we have so much money, we can buy our way out of things. Right? We have political might. We can get, like, vote and write letters and get angry and yell at people on the Internet and everything else and get our way. What do we need God for? We got this. Problem is, we're probably just as much keystone cops as these guys. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. By the way, meaning it is his angel, early Jews and early Christians believed that every person had a guardian angel. And when they were killed or died, their angel would show up to people they knew. So they were like, oh, yeah, they finally just killed him and his angel came by. You don't know what you're talking about. No way Peter got out of there. But they're praying. But Peter continued knocking. Can you picture him out there? Hey! And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Oh my gosh, it's Peter, shut up. I, I, I know it's a lot of emphasis on this point, but I, I think it's important to understand these are not people who are nailing it, right? He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. What did Peter do? He went into hiding. Peter leaves Jerusalem. He's no longer at the center of the church. James, the brother of Jesus, is now in charge. And he's in charge for a few years until the, uh, the priests kill him, actually, when the the guy who's running the city is fired in the gap they they murdered they murdered James in the courtyard of the temple this text depicts them as anything but strong courageous cunning and skilled why does that matter because they needed him the most important principle behind this is god doesn't need our strength or ingenuity i'm going to say that again god doesn't need our strength or ingenuity In fact, our strength has a habit of getting in the way. I'm so smart and good, I can do this on my own. Anybody else do that? Anybody else overwhelmed and drowning? But you sure as heck can do it, and you don't want anybody to think you can't? I I love this text, and I had to include it. This is Paul writing. He's talking about his, like, prowess as an apostle and he talks about like god showing him this vision and then god gives him this thorn in his side which i heard referenced this morning uh, by someone and he prays for god to remove the thorn three times i pleaded with the lord about this that it should leave me 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to say that again. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Repeat after me. For when I am weak, for when I am weak, <laughs> wouldn't even do, no. <laughs> what do we do with that? God allows sometimes the most dire circumstances before he intervenes in the very last moment like this because that puts his power on display, Right? A lot of times, though, we don't pray in those moments. A lot of those times, we don't ask. A lot of those times, we don't turn to him. A lot of those times, we make sure we never end up in this spot where we need God. We don't ever need our neighbor or our brothers and sisters in Christ. They need us, right? Easier to help someone than to ask. I've been in ministry for decades, and I can tell you, people are much happier helping than they are asking for help or being helped. Um. One apostle is rescued, but what happened to the other one? He died. Eventually, almost all of the apostles were executed or murdered or beaten to death or what have you, except for John, um, who died of old age. Hooray, in prison. Um, Sometimes God's plan involves the blood of the martyrs. In fact, the scriptures speak highly of suffering for the gospel. This is an important idea. When we pray, when we pray, sometimes... God answers in miraculous ways. Sometimes he lets us go through hardship. Why? Because suffering changes us. Because when I hurt or when I struggle or when I weep or when I whatever, I'm sharing in the suffering of Christ. Well, that's miserable, sort of, but it helps me understand what Jesus went through for me. And sometimes God doesn't answer because I don't have any real faith and I'm not bothering to pray. There's a mistake people make, though, when they say, oh, God didn't heal you because your faith is bad and you're a sinner. That's not scriptural, right? That's not the proper answer. But there are times, like, there are things I pray for. I'm like, yeah, God ain't going to help with this, right? It happens. But if we pray as righteous people in faith, we know that God will do what is right on our behalf. It doesn't hurt to ask. It doesn't, like, draw us away to ask. In fact, Children should always ask of their father in heaven, take care of me, heal me, forgive me, show me grace, help me get through this. When the church grew strong in worldly power, it grew comfortable and weak in spiritual strength. We stop aligning ourselves with God because we can advance our agenda with our own strength. Anybody feel guilty of that? How do we apply this? First off, we must recognize our weakness, and we have to lean on him out of need. Um, This requires that we pray often. It requires that we confess our sins to each other and that we read and know his word. Why is that? Well, a lot of people hide their sin because we're prideful, because it burns like heck to say, I sin. And we want to appear strong 
Does God have a lot of value in my appearance of strength? No. But if I won't put myself in a position where I trust the people around me, the body of Christ, my brothers and sisters through the blood of Jesus, if I will not lean on them, if I will not trust them, if I will not talk to them, if I will not confess to them, I'm just going to be by myself. I'm never going to find death. As long as I believe I'm strong, I don't need God. Confession reveals how weak we are. But I can confess in my head. I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, a lot of times we're more afraid of our brothers than God because we're actually confessing to ourselves. And study. Why study? Well, prayer and study help us understand. And a lot of times we don't see our need because we don't pray and because we don't know what God's Word says. We believe we're awesome. Right? We believe we kick butt. We're the Chuck Norris of spirituality. We never cry and we never screw up. But in reality, in reality, it's God that does all the work. We're only effective when we realize we need him and when we align ourselves with him. We must begin by trusting God in every aspect of our lives and intentionally lean on him. If we never do it, we will never learn. My son will not learn to ride a bicycle. I've been fighting with him for years trying to get him to learn to ride a bicycle. And you know why he isn't learning to ride a bicycle? Because he won't get on the bicycle. And once he's on it, he won't continue pedaling once I let go. You know how quickly he's going to learn a bicycle riding thing in this current technique? He will never learn it. I will never learn to be spiritually strong if I will not put myself in a place where I need God. Ever. I will not be spiritually strong if I will not be vulnerable with the people around me. I will not be spiritually strong if I will not admit that I need God. Can't do it. It begins with steps of faith. Not stupid ones, but real, deep, living, committed steps of faith. Finally, this trust must be a part of every part of our lives. Our words, our behavior, our relationships, our finances, our everything. A lot of us are very comfortable letting God have this stuff but not everything. Isn't it true? I trust God, but I sure like my 401k growing. Don't worry, I'll never get to retire. Um, (laughs) You're all stuck with me. Um, I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, I I know, um, I hope that God has spoken today. I hope he's poked some of y'all. This has been kicking my butt all morning. Like, I, this is a sermon I preach to me, not to you. That's why I went long. I don't care. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us today. I pray that you would speak into our hearts and our souls and our minds. I pray that you would pierce us to the very core with the truth that we need you. That on our best days, we're you know, like, a, like a brigade of clowns driving around trying to put out a fire, Lord. But in reality, we need you. That through you, there's nothing that can stand in our way. Change the whole world like the early church did. Help us to put away the idolatry that we have for power and prestige and respect and instead flee to you over and over again and confess our sins to each other and be open about how badly we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good morning, folks.